going to mix it up a little bit here today. Uh, we're going to be talking about risk, but not the risk that you're normally used to when you listen in on this, which is predominantly insurance related risk. We're going to talk about insurance as well, but we're also going to talk a little bit about sports gambling and compare and contrast how someone that operates in that area, think of like a casino, um, would, you know, how they make decisions and how we make decisions on, on insurance. Um, so I have a father-son duo here. Uh, many, many of you that will have followed me will know uh, the gentleman uh, with the white hair, um, the elder statesman of the Wilson family, Bill Wilson, uh, who's um, basically, you know, I got, I got his book around here somewhere. Uh, I've been using it as a Bible lately. Uh, very well known in the insurance space for policy language and uh, contracts and all of that stuff. And I have a son, Jack Wilson, who's joining us. And so I wanted to uh, give you both a warm welcome to the Yellow Book Road podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, so where, let's start with book? what's that, Bill? I said, where is my book? I figured it'd be like, you know, three inches away. Well, I can tell you, um, I don't know, it, it's probably in my backpack, but the one that's supporting my laptop right now uh, is not specifically yours, but it's how to draft and in interpret insurance policies. And I do see a lot of references to Bill Wilson in that book. So Hermie, yeah, you're, you're, you're in and around me at, uh, at all times and I'm right next to my bed. So I'm hoping by osmosis, you know, the, the memes from the book kind of leap forward in my dreams. Well, I, I figured the, the digital Kindle version is probably on your phone so you can have it immediately wherever you are. I'm positive. <laughs> I'm positive. So, uh, which is kind of uh, coincidental because um, I'm recording two podcasts back to back. And the one after this is all on uh policy management systems, but also policy documentation and things like that. So this is like going to be two hours of this sort of stuff. You should just probably tag along to the next podcast. Is that a policy genius thing? It's not policy genius. No, no, but, but on the agenda where we will be talking about policy language. So policy management and all of that. I've been, I've been, I hate to, I hate to tangent already. Jack's sitting there like, okay, when when are we gonna start talking about sports gambling? But just as a quick tangent and an aside, uh, I have spent the whole day focused on not policy management system, but document management system. Because Bill, I think a lot of where policy management system falls apart is in the document management. We got like versions all over the place, and it's like, who's got the latest version of this thing? that we're trying to negotiate with the insurance company. They don't have it, we can't find it. It's like, it's, it's, not, it's not the, the, the documents of the policy form that matters. I bet mistakes leak in just because nobody knows what version they're working on. So yeah, there you go. Particularly if you're um, a multi-state operation, you may, you may have five different versions. But. Yes, I, I, I'm thinking of like how GitHub locks in code. And I've been watching the software team develop and do that stuff. And I'm like, we need that exact, exact same methodology and technology for document management, for the policy forms, 
That way, when something goes live and goes into production, that gets locked in and no one can touch it. It is like sacrosanct. No one can amend those documents. And if you want to make an amendment, there's a whole other process that we have to go through, but that's neither here nor there. So, um, and then there's Jack who's sitting there just like, oh, you, you insurance people with your boring policy language. Jack's like, I, I have games tonight that I have to put, you know, put odds on. So uh, let's get That's into true. that. Let's, uh, let's do a quick elevator pitch. Bill, um, even though I think a lot of my viewers already know who you are, give me a 30 second on you. And then Jack, take a little bit more time since um, I think the most of this podcast is really about what you do. Bill? Uh, well, I started out as an engineer. That's kind of Dilbert-like thing. I got, uh, got an engineering degree, didn't care for it, and uh, managed to segue into the insurance industry where I became mesmerized by insurance contracts. And uh, so I, uh, I worked for ISO for uh, counting part-time in college, almost 20 years. Went to work for the Big Eye State Affiliate in Tennessee, doing education and research and technical stuff for agents. Then moved after 11 years to the Big Eye National where I was for 17 years until retiring uh, at the end of 2016. And since then I've been blogging and, and I've written six books in the last five years. And uh, mainly just uh, writing, blogging and complaining about a lot of stuff. So I'm, I've, I've developed a pretty, uh, a pretty remarkable expertise at griping. Bill, you, I think you are the case study for develop an expertise in something everyone else in the world doesn't really care about. And you own, you will own the market. Yeah. If, if only I could find somebody willing to pay for it. <laughs> we just hired a chief operating officer and um, he comes from one of the companies that you, you almost got right name wise. And uh, we were talking about uh, setting up um, internally, as, as you know, from the emails we've had um, doing our own training on policy documentation. He's like, I got this book. Uh, it's, it's the best. We we gave it to all new employees. It's called Words Collide. I'm like, no, it's when words collide. I know very, <laughs> I know the author very well <laughs> on that. So you're a legend, Bill. Just uh, that's more valuable than money. Yeah. But speaking of money, Jack, why don't you give us a quick intro into yourself? Sure, sure. Um, so, uh, but but funny my dad knows me he they always grew up uh when i grew up they called me daniel uh my middle name and i think i was named after uh jack daniels uh whiskey which is obviously a a, a great uh sports uh and gambling sidekick uh especially when you get a little nervous later on in the games when it's not going your way um in professionally I, out in the my day job and so people are going to know me as as john um, but, uh, so, uh, I work in the analytic space, uh, in the healthcare industry. Uh, it's been something that's was sort of self-taught when I gravitated to that space, once I got in the, to that world professionally. Um, 
And then, you know, I really kind of forayed into the sports gambling just recently as it became legal in the online books in Tennessee. Um, as many people uh, have done in the past, I had used foreign uh, books to bet on big events like the Super Bowl and, and those types of things. It's really just uh, there's a difference between when you're trying to do it for fun. Um, it's effectively paying to in, increase your level of enjoyment uh, during certain events uh, versus cool. trying to actually do it correctly uh, and productively. M- money's on the line and jail time. It's it's sure on edge. Sure, sure. Um, the yeah, w- what would have been great is back then they used to offer to pay you and pay you out in Bitcoin. Um, when uh, I wish I had taken, taken him up that. on that uh, seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Um, but so we just got into it recently and then uh, had some mild success as a pretty amateur, just you know, le- level person betting a dollar here, uh, five dollars there. Uh, not really leveraging power of data, just simply going off of the fact that you know, was, you know, had been my whole life pretty much uh, heavy into sports and, and analyzing and really caring about like the games themselves rather than just the enjoyment of rooting for teams um, and that sort of thing. So that objectivity helped, but started doing well uh, and then thought, hey, I might as well apply skills that I have technically to these data sets and improve the the output and the performance. And it just sort of you know, taking a, a rule to say I'm, I'll only bet X percent of the money I have on any given day uh, quickly when you do well, that percentage or that number starts to increase uh, and it eventually became something uh, recently that uh, is very lucrative. So um, it's uh, it's been a, an interesting path and um, very enjoyable and excited to talk about it. And you're online. So I follow... Mm-hmm what you do. And I think that's what we're going to get into the meat of it. And um, for, for the insurance professionals that are listening to this, one way I might be able to kind of begin the framing of this is to go back in time to 1995 or so. Um, Northridge earthquake had just hit, hit California. And uh, California, before that, California um, had instituted that if you were selling property insurance, you had to sell earthquake if someone wanted it. So you had to uh, provide it. Because of that, after Northridge, insurance companies were just like, we're out of here. We're just like scramming. And um, so the state of California, in in its infinite wisdom, said, we'll just create our own insurance company and just will allow the carriers that exist to basically dump all of the earthquake risk over to us and we'll manage it. So in, in part to try to get some reinsurance coverage, because this was a brand new business, uh, they, approached, they approached Mr. Warren Buffett from Berkshire Hathaway, who ended up selling a uh, billion dollar policy. I think it was the first billion dollar policy that was um, issued in the United States. And uh, he got paid, I believe over two years, he got paid, I think like, $400,000, I'm sorry, $400 million for that billion dollar policy. And I think part of what, what strikes me as interesting is a good connection between sports gambling and insurance is Warren Buffett didn't know anything about earthquakes. 
his in his mind, um, you know, he consulted with some people and they said, the odds of you losing a billion dollars on this are about probably around 1%, a little less, a little more. And he's doing numbers in his head. He's like, but I'm getting paid 40%. I'm going to take that bet. And, and I will always take that bet. And that's kind of how I think about sports gambling as well, is that, you know, there are so many different sports. And one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, do you prefer to go by John or Jack, by the way? Uh, we'll, do, we'll do John, just okay. in case there people end up viewing that, that know me. Yeah. So, John, um, I, I, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, sports gamblers have this like um, stereotype about who they are. But in reality, if you've watched sports gambling, they don't bet on every single game. Like they don't go crazy. They actually have a methodology and some of it might be quirky. Some of it might be, you know, um, you know, voodoo and stuff like that. But uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Can you talk a little bit about the universe of sporting events Mm. and whittling that down to something that is manageable where you can compute odds and you can try to do what I just described where the odds are so you're getting paid so much in excess of what the odds say you should get paid that some of the decisions almost become like no-brainers right yeah no, that's that's a great point so you, you know when you look at I think the first ground rule to set is um a lot of people will naysay the ability to be an individual and come up with a methodology for being better at handicapping games better, I say, than Vegas, because they they should theoretically employ the best out there. Um, well, That's what I would believe. Yeah. Is, so is they would have an army of scientists, statisticians, mathematicians, mm -hmm. uh, ru former Russian physicists who are sitting there <laughs> computing odds yeah uh and and they most likely do um but the 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 why that's almost not relevant is that they're not trying to solve the same problem you're trying to solve so they're trying to get the public to bet an even amount of money on either side of the line they set so if they say for instance tonight we think the milwaukee bucks will beat the miami heat by five and so they want to get half of the people on one side and half on the other, because it doesn't matter in that event what happens. They could beat them by 50 or they could lose by 50, but an even number of people bet on either side. And when they only pay you 90 cents on the dollar that you bet in on an even odds bet, they're going to win in the long run, right? So the question isn't whether you can be better at handicapping the games than them. It's, it's just that you're simply solving different problems. Um, so in that regard, it's it's pretty easy to find, um, you know, probabilistic offsets where you have you say this is 60 percent likely they say it's 40 percent, um, because a lot of the times what happens is you find that the media will convince people of one narrative around a game or a series because they're trying to hype something up. Uh, you know, it, it could be very obvious that the the Boston Celtics don't belong with the, the Brooklyn Nets this year in their first round playoff series. But if you watch ESPN, you'd have no idea that uh, this game, the series isn't going to go seven games and it's not going to be, you know, um, incredibly close.
Um, so those things are pretty easy to find. And I think the, the, like exactly what you said, where, you know, even long shot bets, like in tournament formats, seeing that the Phoenix suns are 20 to one to win the, the, the NBA finals, when I think it's probably closer to 10 to one still isn't great, but it's twice as likely than what they're giving me. And so if they make it far in a tournament format, I can actually start betting against them because their odds have decreased so much uh, that I would in, even out and make money on either side. So it's identifying a lot of those types of opportunities. Um, like you said, where you just think, if I played this out 20 times, there's no way they would only win once um, in, in tackling those those types of events. Yes. Yeah, so um, do, you, do you have an internal model or algorithm that you use um, to compute odds? Sure. I use a, a very simplistic type of uh, methodology that involves a lot of rolling uh, average type calculations. There's nothing... I'm not, you know, levying any heavy data science predictive modeling, uh, forest maps, or, or any of that stuff. It is, it's pretty standard. I had someone that I know uh, help me try to create some of those things, and I found that they, too often in the world of, and you could probably speak to this as well. When it comes to human beings, you find a lot of those types of models tend to overfit more often than not. And you end up having way too high of confidence intervals because if you graphed a line, it would look something like this. And you know that that's just not even, that can't possibly be correct. Uh, and it's massively overfit to like some 20th degree polynomial equation. So Bill, that would be the first linkage to insurance, I think, because in my experience, that is absolutely the case. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of even like admitted markets where you know, there's a kind of a forced fit structure to, hey, here's this risk, here's the rate that, you know, here's this exposure, here's the rate that we think fits that exposure. But if you look into the finer details um, in, in like any actuarial model, there's so many assumptions that are built in. It's almost like once that hits the real world buying consumer, they'll get hit with either moral hazard, adverse selection, or they'll just be plain wrong. You know, won't, it just won't hold up um, to that. What do you, how do you, uh, what do you think about that particular element of linking um, how insurers compute odds and how sports gamblers compute odds and the methodology that's used? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, traditionally with actuarial sciences, you have pretty standard mathematical approaches that, that are, are proven over time. What, uh, what I've uh, blogged about sometimes is uh, the movement from actuarial per se into the data scientists, predictive modeling and things like that. I, I saw a presentation at a um, CPCU convention uh, from a, a, a guy with a company, I won't name the company, but he said they were looking at, in their auto line at a particular individual insured being rated based on 300 different characteristics. And he gave some examples. He gave, gave an example, not exactly of that, uh, but uh, said they had actually looked at published bowling scores as a possible factor because if you bowl on Wednesday night in a mixed bowling league, it's kind of a fun league. There's a lot of beer drinking going on. 
So people that have either very low scores or very high scores tend to drink more than the people in the middle. So they're more likely to drink and drive. And, you know, he said, and I know that sounds silly, but we're, you know, we're looking at stuff like that. And that, that kind of scares me in an industry like this, particularly a, a regulated industry where, where so much is on the line that they, how could you possibly find any value in a statistical model that looks at 300 different factors for an individual. So, yeah. you know, I don't know, sometimes I think with insurance that some of these things are, are, are just fun or they're, they're looking, just trying to get ideas and that I'm not sure of the practical value of it. Particularly, yeah. you know, with homeowners, you, you could have dozens and dozens of factors. Well, traditionally the premium an individual pays, not looking at the industry as a whole profitability, but as an individual bet or on an individual person, the, you, your homeowner's premium depends on the structure of the building, frame, brick, veneer, masonry, whatever. Is there a hydrant within a thousand feet? Is there a fire department within five miles? Those are all things that, I mean, even consumers can understand the significance of having a fire department two miles away versus 20 miles. And uh, those have historically been the rating character, factors or characteristics. But now if you start throwing in credit scoring and things like that, very esoteric things that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what it adds to the bottom line profitability of the insurance industry. Everybody, companies are looking for their angle on how to make money. Well, you know, I, not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I think just having been in the, in the both in, an advanced mathematics program in college, some com computer science work, and then seeing being in a data science program or department in a place of like in a, in a, in a high technology company that you see a lot of, I think just there's a lot of bloat in the, uh, the higher education system where you have a lot of people uh, using curated data sets that are mass produced and people not really learning how to practically apply a lot of these practices and then they get out into these types of fields and they think, you know, if I just use this big online market store data set methodology to actual human beings making decisions or not making decisions or other types of environmental factors, it'll just work. It just, it'll predict just as well as the other data set was predictive. And I know from our experience in the in my industry, we when we built that department, we had a lot of promise on delivering predictive models of where patients would go and what in, you know procedures they would have and all this. And eventually, a lot of that got scrapped for just uh, tell me what the probability is that this will happen. Don't tell me this thing's going to happen, but just give me an idea of what risk factors these people have. So I think you see it. There's just a lot of that, and it's it's in the it's in the sports world for for sure. I, I think I, so. I think we're 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 hitting on something that could be interesting. And by and by all means, John, when you hear Bill or myself talk about something in insurance, uh, we're going to poke holes into your stuff. Why don't you poke holes into ours as well? That's uh, all completely fair game. But to the overfitting into what. Bill, what you just said, um, you know, we've had that debate for a considerable period of time about credit scores and how, you know, um, clearly there's a statistical relationship, but it's not necessarily causal, right? 
And I think that is uh, potentially uh, problematic for the insurance industry versus other industries where I think um, they have a better recognition of one, I think overfitting, but two, um, just how human behavior changes. So the models that they use potentially go stale and they know that. And so there's like a constant process of, you know, is this model still relevant? And I think because of the constraints we have, Bill, in insurance, um, you know, yearly cycles and things of that nature, I don't think we put it to the same rigor as well. Like, I, you know, um, the bowling thing might actually be valid, but uh, that can be gamed, right? Like someone could, if someone knows that that's a criteria that's potentially affecting them, then there's a way that they could, you know, get the best, best of both worlds in a way and kind of play around and game that sort of thing. And I think that's, I, to me, that seems like a blind spot in, in insurance that uh, is also a blind spot in other industries, but at least they, I think they're much more aware that that happens because they're kind of exposed to it uh, more frequently than insurance. Um, any thoughts on that? Uh, no, other than I've, uh, you know, the, I, I guess I'm, I'm just the old guy that, uh, and I, uh, I think I need to uh, reposition the plastic fire hydrants I have in my front yard as long as they're, <laughs> you know, the old way could be manipulated as well, I guess. But I, I worry in the insurance industry about the, the, the source of the data, you know, with, with sports betting, statistically, you can pretty much rely that, you know, this, this uh, defensive statistically re statistics rebound stuff like that is probably pretty reliable and accurate. It's not like you've got, you know, four, seven year olds recording this data. The people that are doing it are competent with insurance industry. When you're looking at potentially 300 rating factors, where is that data coming from? And I've written about this in my, my blog. I wrote about my own experience. Uh, and getting an online homeowner's quote, and they got their a lot of the information about my home from Zillow or one of those Trulia, those things. And I looked, and it was completely erroneous. They they were off by a thousand square feet on my home. So, you know, I, I, I question the the how comprehensively that data is being scrubbed by those that are using it and the reliability. Yeah, well, I, I think that gets into another topic I want to kind of pick at here, difference between sports gambling and insurance is margin of safety, right? So Bill, in your particular example, the way you just described it, I face that on a day-to-day -day basis. And we've, I'm not in admitted markets, I'm excess and surplus lines. So we kind of cook it in, right? We kind of assume that the data is dirty and we've built uh, decision trees that basically says, okay, at each of these important, each of these important parameters, um, what are the, what are the, what if the data that comes in is faulty, would we do, right? And we kind of, we kind of, we have like a worst case scenario and um, what we think it is, right? And we, we keep track of the variance as it, as it moves along the chain before we get pricing. And this is this might be like something that John is more familiar with. What we do is if we go to a decision node and we say, okay, well, the worst case scenario is this parameter. So if they're 
and, and if the premium matches like the worst case scenario, we kind of jump on it every single time. Because with more better information, the risk is likely to come down, the premium likely to come down. John, is when you're decision-making, when you're trying to advise on, hey, here's this opportunity. There's a game going on or going to happen. And here are the different factors around that, um, the odds and how you should take it. How do you make decisions around uh, which ones you actually announce? My guess is that you want to announce the ones that you think have the highest likelihood of actually occurring, but how do you do that? Sure. Um, well, so, you know, on, on the Twitter where I, where I post my picks, um, and if you've seen the post, you kind of followed maybe the little game that I was doing, but we did a, a run of the, I think it was about the final 17 days of the NBA season. So from April 30th through March 16th, we picked, I basically took a, a, a theoretical million dollars, uh, which was proportional to the amount of money that I was uh, putting, although certainly much, much uh, more desirable. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. Okay. So we took a million dollars every day and spread it across uh, a multitude of bets, ranged from three to maybe seven or eight bets on some of the days, because you range from three games to to 12 on any given day. And then finally all 15 uh, games on the very last day of the season. And so it was, it, it was like, what do you, how much money do you put on each one? Uh, and why do you choose the games that you choose? You know, some games uh, I have rules for, there are just certain teams. I will just, I don't bet on the game they're in because they're so Jekyll and Hyde that it's not, the, the data are so skewed on those teams. You actually don't know what you're going to get. It's, I think it was the Miami Heat. They played a series of games where um, they the total score of the game there was uh, it was either over 220 or under 195 for like 16 games in a row. They didn't never went in between that. And it, it's like, how do you even attempt to parse some sort of correlation there? They were just either awful or they were really good that day. Um, and so there are rules like that where they're just games I'll ignore regardless of what the data tell me. And a lot of that is qualitative analysis and just actually having to watch basketball. I would definitely advise no one should just gamble on sports purely off of the data um, because the data will lie to you uh, and will make uh, they will hide nuances and factors that you uh, that you would see if you were watching the games. Um, and how as far as how I distribute the money, um, sometimes it's how it's sometimes it's a delta between what the data tell me is likely to happen versus what the line is so going back to the very first point we were talking about of i think the knicks have an 80 percent chance to win but vegas is only giving them a 50 percent chance to win that's the largest gap i'm going to put a, a larger amount of money on the knicks than any other game that day right so that's one factor that goes into it another one is just what's the what are what's the level of variance likely with any type of bet that I like. So if it's a full game, just pick the winner. That's extremely low variance, high consistency. If the data thinks someone's likely to win, then that's, that's, there's a lot of, there's a larger sample of possessions, uh, ways they can score, stop the other team from scoring, all those sorts of things. The next level of variance down would be what's the total amount of points scored in the game, because one team can win shooting poorly as long as the other team also shoots poorly, right? But if if a game is going to go high scoring, both teams have to shoot well. 
Uh, and so you kind of end up in a situation where you're relying on both of them to be consistent. And then finally, it would be if I'm going to bet on a, the score after one quarter, who's winning after one quarter, who's winning after one half, uh, stuff like that. So it's such a smaller sample size. So even if the data tell me, hey, the Knicks haven't lost a first half in a month and a half, but and the Hawks have only have only won three in the in the last month and a half, seems like a really high probability. There's also just fewer possessions in the game so even though it's higher it's more likely to happen they how much they might miss by is a much greater uh, margin of of error there so i would put less money on those kinds of things yeah that's interesting i i follow i was friends with someone who was betting on football and basically bet the home team every week week in and week out and did awesome Mm -hmm. I tried to duplicate what he did the next year and I got creamed. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, do you, how do you feel about, um, your, your process sounds very bottoms up. Like you're looking at individual pieces of, of games of criteria. Um, would you, would you say that you have an overarching system though? I would say yes, but I, I would also say that's very, again, it's very qualitative um, and, and it can be time consuming. Um, whereas I think a lot of people who, the obvious parallel to sports gambling is, is like daily fantasy type sports um, that people play a lot of. And a lot of those are, are basically purely numbers driven because you're often normally not caring who wins or loses. You're simply just caring which players do well. Yeah. Um um, but I, it, it is, it is very thorough and there is kind of like a methodology, um, that is heavily guided by data. But like I said, I, I just don't, I think you, you must care about the sports you're betting on and not just because you're betting on them. Like you must actually know, be knowledgeable of the sports themselves and the players and all of that. Are there, are there any sports that you find to be, um, superior uh, not in watching because everyone knows football, but uh, I mean, in uh, in betting circumstances, uh, how would you rank them? Like, are there some sports that are better than others? Um, some more consistent than others? Um, you know, a, a stock market equivalent might be, you know, um, you know, depending on who you are, you might just prefer to go to like large cap stocks because it's just got higher volume and you can get in and out easy. Um, and there might be others who are more risk, more risk taking and say, you know, I'll take the illiquid ones and take my chances on those. Yeah. Do, you, do you, do you have an order or there, are there better leagues that, um, that you find are more, you know, conducive towards victory? Sure. Um, I think it, it depends on, on what you're doing. So in like how you're, how you're approaching it. So for me, trying to be a daily better and bet um, in, individually on games rather than trying to string together large uh, parlays or do a lot of futures, which I, I dabble in a little bit, but did not too many. Um, it, the NBA is has been very good, and I've run kind of simulations of past seasons to try to test my methodology before mm -hmm. I applied it this year. I did find that clearly the COVID uh, and lack of fans and that sort of thing in, in arenas is a, is, a, is a massive impact. Um, it, it effectively removed any home court 
advantage or an analysis that I found uh, in the NBA. If anything, actually, the beginning of the regular season when they had more stringent restrictions on what players were allowed to do outside of the games, like what clubs they could go to or how they could conduct themselves in free time, you actually had an advantage being on the road uh, because normally you would just go back to the hotel or, or whatever anyway. Um, so that stuff like that was interesting. But I would say uh, basketball, pro basketball, because there are so many games um, and there are so many possessions within the games. So when the law of large numbers starts to come into play, basketball is a really interesting game because, you know, unlike football where you might only get the ball six or seven times as a team, the entire game, depending on the pace of play, um, the, or, or baseball where each batter might only get four plate appearances on average in a game or pitchers are only pitching three or four innings uh, these days as they do. Uh, the sample size is much lower. So in basketball, you're looking in the NBA in particular, uh, between 80 to 90 possessions a game for both teams. Uh, it's an extremely fast-paced game these days. So there's just a lot of volume. So guys are just going to shoot their percentages. And most of the time, the games will kind of come out to about the scores that you predict, unless something weird happens. Um so that's number one. I will say at the beginning of the season, it was very hard because they had such a short off season because they finished their playoffs in October of last year, which is normally when they'd actually start the season. So they only had about two months off and guys were really just dogging it at the beginning of the season and taking extended breaks and not playing hard, but also not playing hard all the time is helpful uh, in, in gambling because there's more consistency. So if everybody's kind of just going through the motions uh, you're going to have a more predictable outcome. Whereas in college basketball, for instance, which is if you, most people will say is the one sport you should never bet on, you know, um, and I'll, I'll start to sound probably uh, the, a difference in cultural preference on what sport uh, we're viewing pleasure between NCAA and NBA basketball. But I, you hear oftentimes guys talk about uh, well, they just don't play defense in the NBA and they guys are really hustling in college. And it's, I would not, not confuse hustle uh, with with good defense uh, in college. Guys tend to be flying around and they kind of lose control of their bodies and they're diving on the ground. And it's like maybe that's not actually the best thing you should do, but it looks like they're really excited. And so that kind of excitement and energy and and effort can actually con like confuse uh, data and make the games more unpredictable. Uh, it's why March Madness is so fun, but it's also why it's so impossible to to get it right in the long run, right? Yeah, that's so interesting. And so, Bill, no, uh, go ahead, Bill. I was going to say that when 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 he was talking about the uh, number of possessions in the NBA and the number of shots that are taken, the number of passes the ball makes that you know it sounds a lot like the law of large numbers in the insurance industry that the yeah. more the more statistical granules you have the more predictable it can be than you know trying to predict whether otani is going to hit a home run in the next game or not you know when you've only when you've only got uh, you know a, a few games or a few at bats then it's uh, it's a lot tougher than trying to predict whether uh, you know, Steph Curry is going to hit the next 25 footer or not when you've got hundreds and hundreds of shots that he's taken. Yeah. 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 And I, I would say to, you know, baseball is a game of extreme day-to-day -day variance. 
where you can make up for gambling in baseball is volume betting, almost betting on every game. But you kind of have to do that because if you consider baseball 162 games, if a team wins 100 games in a baseball season, that's a really good team. Yeah. And they're only winning about 60% of their or 65-ish percent of their games in, in, in that standpoint. Uh, that's extremely low when typically the best team in the NBA is winning in the upper, the mid to upper 60s out of 82 games. So they're winning, you know, uh, in the high 70s of, of win percentage. So it's just, it, it's, there's just much more variance in games like that. Football is also kind of the same way, but what football has going for it is predictability in terms of scoring differential because of uh, the way you can only score in specific increments of numbers. Right. So um, it's a lot easier to predict that the team will win by three, six, seven versus winning by five because it happens so much less frequently and those sorts of things. Bill, I think a, a clear linkage here is what you just described, the law of large numbers and how John's kind of framing this. It's, um, you know, I think that's why auto insurance, for instance, um, the models that go into pricing that out um, are fairly robust because you have so many accidents occurring all over the place. So like the, the, the ability to um, not be surprised, right, I think is much lower in auto. But then as you leave auto, it starts to become what John describes with the other sports. It starts to become not only uh, more variable, um, take homeowners where now you're introducing both uh, me as a homeowner and whether I'm a good homeowner and I'm not going to, you know, put um, gasoline cans from, you know, that I was hoarding when the pipeline went down in my garage, um, but also the weather, right, which I have no control over. And that's highly variable. And you start to get to this, um, the noise starts to become uh, really um, the noise, the, the data becomes start to, starts to become very noisy and it starts to become really difficult. And I think that's a, that's a good tie-in because it's um, for underwriting firms, it's how to make decisions about what are we gonna put our capital up against, right? And then what, you know, what are the potential opportunities? But that decision then has ramifications. Like, so for John, from what you just described on basketball, it, if, if someone decided that they were going to start betting against basketball, um, it'd be better to have a select few events versus spreading it out versus what you said in baseball, which is now you probably want to spread it out. I think we have equivalency with some decisions on, how, on what to do in insurance as well. Yeah, yeah. that sounds right. Bill, are you going to say something? No, not really. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's more to me, to me. That's the interesting tie-in as an underwriter, right? Like the decision is not only are you going to go into a particular market, but what are the What's the optimal way to behave in that particular market? I think there's direct tie-in between sports gambling and insurance. It's very similar in how the chief underwriting officer or the firm. And the risk management committee, how they have to decide they're, how they're going to lay down their chips. And I think um, a lot of, Bill, to, to your point with like all of these extra 
variables. I don't know if that was a homeowner's company or, or the, the auto company, but it, I think it matters where, like where that extra data is coming from. I think it matters in what you're trying to actually accomplish. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, I wonder in insurance, again, you know, what really is the point? Because it, it is a regulated industry. I think that companies are looking for advantages and they're looking at data and predictive modeling to get an advantage competitively over other countries. But, it, and they're trying to make it more predictable down at that granular level, insured by insured. But I'm always reminded of the, uh, I, think the I think it was, uh, I think, the movie Minority Report, I think that was the name of where they they can predict whether someone's going to commit a crime and then they'll catch them before it happens. Yep. It's kind of the same way if they could, you know, if you can get down where you can predict whether an individual is going to have a loss, then at, at that point, it's not insurance anymore because there's no, there's no spread of risk. Uh, and, and it's kind of scary to think that you can predict it that well. And even if you can, if, if a company could predict it so that they become incredibly profitable, well, the regulator is going to step in and say, you got to reduce your rates. You're making too much money. Yeah. So you, you, you don't end up at, ultimately in any better position than you were before than just, you know, just having one rate for everybody. Even. Yeah, that's another huge difference, right? Like in sports gambling, there's almost no upside. I mean, there's almost unlimited upside. In insurance, the upside is very predictable and there are constraints around the upside from outside forces. And, but, I, but I, Bill, I think that's part of the calculus in the decision-making with these firms is, having, is deciding, you know, is the lack of upside worth the, the risk that comes with that? I think that's something that John and his and the, you know his colleagues over on, on in sports betting, I uh, I think they benefit um, from being able to to being able to compute compute risks and decide how they're going to bankroll it with the idea that there is unlimited upside. What do you think right. of that? Yeah. yeah. You got to John. What do you what do you how do you think about yeah. the upside? Yeah, so there, there's actually there's actually a lot of ways to manipulate it these days. So you know, back in the day, and I don't I don't have no idea what I mean by back in the day, but before my time as a as a gambler, um, uh, many <laughs> decades ago, ago, I believe. Yeah, uh, you didn't have access to alternate lines, and all you couldn't move spreads. And so what I mean by that, for people who don't know, is that if Vegas sets the line at you know three for the Cowboys over the Eagles. Um, you can actually say, no, I think the Cowboys are going to beat them by at least a touchdown. So I'm going to move it to six and a half and they'll pay you more for that. So you're taking more risk by, you know, mm -hmm. taking longer odds and saying, I think they're actually seven points better and not just three. And you, they'll pay you instead of paying you 90 cents on the dollar, they'll pay you a buck 20 on the dollar to, to make that bet. Um, and so that's where you can actually uh, really exploit them, I think, uh, by taking, like, if you follow me, I hardly ever take anything that's minus odds. And so again, for those who don't know, in the American odds making system, if something says minus 100 and 
150, that means you have to bet $150 to win 100 in profit. Something says plus, it's a uh, plus 150, then you bet 100 to win 150. So I almost always move everything to plus money. And the reason I do that is because I look at, especially in the NBA and basketball, the um, the percentage of games that are decided within one point of the spread, it's extremely low. It's something like 7% of games. And so if I can be paid more than 7% out to just move the game, move the line by one point, then I'm going to do it. Um, and so that's kind of the, it's, it's where I'm, I'm, I'm meta gambling within the, within the handicapping, right? I'm, I'm assessing not only what is the probability that an event happens, what's the probability that an event happens to an nth degree within that. Um, and I think that's where their market is ripe for exploitation because they really don't care. Cause again, they're just trying to get money on either side of, uh, of that one line that they've said. Yeah. The, the equivalent bill on our side would be decide like if you were doing auto insurance deciding what state to go into right yeah. like where where am i going to have for for a single dollar of exposure right am i going to get uh five dollars in oklahoma versus like two dollars in new york and you know kind of balancing that off and uh, I, I i i see an equivalency there do you yeah yeah, and I mean, it's you get back to the regulatory side too, that there's so much more flexibility in sports betting. If, if, with the example you're giving, we know in the industry what redlining is and that it's illegal. That you know that if you write in these zip codes, uh, you're going to lose money, but you are compelled to write or not compelled to write in those zip codes, but you're compelled to not not right in those zip yeah. codes or to use that as the basis for your for your underwriting so what you can do and the leeway that you have is i think much less in the insurance industry than it is in, in the yeah. uh, gambling industry yeah john i want to uh finish this off talking about um risk management so how do you think about risk management and insurance a lot of it is you know, um, focused on, hey, we, we want to get the right policy holder. And, uh, you know, geographic diversification makes a, makes a big difference, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if uh, get the law of large numbers to work in your favor, even if you're in, you know, weather related exposures, you know, spreading it out from Alaska to Florida to Maine to California or Hawaii, uh, can make a very big difference because you wouldn't expect a single meteorological event to um, hit too many places all at the same time. How do you, what's the equivalent over on the sports gambling side? Yeah, sure. There, so there's a direct, there's a very direct equivalent, which is called um, uh, hedging or uh, more specifically trying to middle. So what that means is suppose I think tonight um, the Milwaukee Bucks will beat the Heat, but I the 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 Bucks are favored by five, and I don't think they'll beat them by more than five. So I, in this case, I actually like both the the Bucks to win, and but the Heat to cover the spread. So I've got a five point window where I can put money on either side, and worst case, the some one of those has to happen. Either the Heat uh, win once you add five points to their score or the Bucks win the game outright. There's also a chance 
I think, a pretty high one that both will happen. And so the worst case scenario is that I, I lose 20% of the money that I put in because I might, I'll get back at least one side of the money. The really high upside is that I win both bets. And so um, that's a technique people use. It's pretty advanced and you need to be pretty statistically confident to do it outright. But one thing you could do is bet live on games where if I said, hey, I think the Bucks are going to cover the spread today, they go up big early. The line, the live line moves to nine points instead of five. Now I can put some amount of money on the heat uh, plus nine. And again, I've given myself a five-ish point window to hit both. And at worst case, I lose 10%. Or there can be instances where it can actually be so large, you can do what I said earlier, move the lines in where you get plus money on either side. You're guaranteed no matter what to win some percentage of money. Uh, and worst case, uh, you win 10% of, and, and best case, you win 200%. Uh, so that's an obvious direct correlation. As far as other risk management techniques go, it's really just um, battling hu native human psyche. Our visceral brains are very wired to negativity bias. Um, you can't let yourself get down when you lose. Uh, we have a tendency, if I bet on every week 17 NFL game and I win 15 and lose uh, one of them, chances are what I'm going to be thinking about later that night is why didn't my model work on that one game? When realistically, I should I should be thinking about man, like what 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 worked, and I should be happy. But we we're not wired that way, and so preventing yourself from going down a bad spiral where you start to constantly question what you're doing, thinking that it isn't working. Um, sometimes the best way to mitigate risk is actually to take uh, more risks just to prove to yourself that it's not actually wrong, that you're doing something right, uh, which I think is odd. But there's a lot to emotionally and psychologically overcome especially once you start betting larger and larger amounts of money relative to where you started yep and bill there is an absolute corollary there as well this is the classic uh hurricane hits something else hits hailstorm hits and the insurance company says that's it we're out of here right type of thing when it could be could have been highly predictable as well, right? I I, uh, I gave the example of earthquakes in California. I know that's a little bit different story, but um, you you do you you do tend to see insurance companies constrict themselves after an event, um, kind of you know really cleaning out their book. And I think much of it is a psychological thing, where they're they feel scarred by the event itself, and they don't want to get scarred again. Yeah, yet yeah, I think that the industry truly is, but for an industry that accepts billions and trillions in risk, we're extremely risk aversive. Yeah, well, uh, for those of you that are listening, I hope you got something out of this as a different perspective on risk, on risk management, on uh, placing bets in an uncertain and risky environment, and how someone from a different line of risk kind of thinks through that. Uh, John Wilson and Bill Wilson, uh, Jack Daniel, I think it's, uh, it's on the table for tonight. Go help yourself. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, it was great. Thanks.